everyone to another episode of the podcast of the fallen we are here today covering memories of ice chapters five and six uh matt just pumped his fist in the air because these chapters are awesome mainly six we can skip over five we can can skip over five it's definitely not my longest chapter summary by far that i've ever done I think you could have cut it a lot shorter because it was completely overrated, I think. Just kidding. Yes. I mean, maybe we can just announce this now. Uh, we've caught up to where D&J's Epic Quest is in their one chapter a week journey through Malazan, and we will be collaborating with them on their podcast for chapter eight because Derek messaged me and was like, hey, we're almost at about the same point and we want to collaborate. What chapter around here would you guys want to do? And I was, I saw what eight was, what was... Yeah, in chapter eight, and I was like, okay, we got to do that one. Yep. So. Eight or bust. Um, I don't think there's anything else, and this is a long chapter, so maybe we should just jump in. Yeah, I mean, why not? Chapter five. Talk the younger suggests a hilltop to camp on. Envy flirts with him and talk resists. Tool begins making arrows and talk watches with interest. Tool tells more of Lady Envy and how she used to travel with Anamander Rake and Osric. He also says that Sanu blocked his first attacks with half-drawn blades. When asked why the Segula are here, Sanu says that they are the army sent to face the Panion Doman for continuing to send priests to their island. Mok is the third among the Segula, and Sanu is only 14 years old. During dinner preparations, the rule challenges Tool, spurring Envy to tell the tale of when Anamander Rake visited the Segula Island and fought his way to the seventh position. Tool beats the rule with the flat of his blade, but is cut up in the process. Whiskey Jack, Quickben, and Mallet meet on the same hill as in Guardians of the Moon after the Siege of Pale. Quick and Mallet describe Peron's affliction and that he's near ascendancy. Quick doesn't tell the commander about Burn and thinks about the fact that there have been other night chills through history. Whiskey Jack and Dujek meet and discuss their situation. Quick Ben will contact the mercenary company in Kapustan. The commanders don't like fighting alongside the Talon IMS, and Whiskey Jack will not stand aside if Kalor tries to kill Silver Fox. The Maib, Corlat, and Brood discuss the nature of Silver Fox and offer theories as to why she grows so quickly and steals her mother's life force. Brood is willing to support the Malazans in their efforts to bring Tattersail to the fore. The army representatives gather, and Krupp shows up on his own. His role in Silver Fox's birth is revealed to everyone, and Cole comes behind as the actual official representative of Druidistan. Krupp stole the council's horses. He exchanges words with Crone and makes everyone laugh. Everyone sits at a table made from a wagon bed, and Krupp takes over the agenda of meeting the army's supply needs. He suggests the Trigal Trade Guild, and Cole accuses him of being an investor. Crone sneaks underneath Brood's table and hears Bridgeburners discussing a reading of the Deck of Dragons that implies Seven Cities is about to rise in rebellion. She looks up at the bottom of the table and sees eyes staring back at her. Peron asks the Maib where to find the table, and she walks him to the tent, commenting that she is pleased Tattersail is showing herself. Crone stumbles out of the tent and recognizes Peron, and Spindle realizes something as well. Peron orders the four Bridgeburners to take the table back to Brood's tent. Peron makes his way to the bridge burner camp and learns that Krupp and Cole will be attached as envoys to their army. Moranth will take the bridge burners to the base of the Bargast Mountains and attempt to negotiate with them to relieve Kapustan. Anamagda Rake arrives and sends the camp into chaos, and Peron declines a final meeting with Silver Fox. After getting one of the most badass descriptions of a character of all time for Rake, Kalor attempts to have Rake kill Silver Fox, and Brood, Corlat, and Whiskeyjack make their intentions known. Rake tries to discover more of Silver Fox with his sorcery, but is swatted aside. 
Weapons are drawn, and suddenly Krupp is drawn into the air by a flying table. Peron vanishes from the bridge burner camp and appears before the leaders, recognizing the face on the underside of the table as himself. Quick Ben arrives and suggests that no one act just yet with so much unknown power flowing around. Peron finds himself in the Azath house in Darugistan. He sees Ralak Nam and Vorkan still asleep in the entryway. Race appears and guides him to a place filled with cards of the Deck of Dragons. He travels into one, the Hold of Beasts, and sees a dwelling with two thrones. It is the original origin of the power of the Imas before their ritual that made them immortal. They have outlasted their own gods and are lost. He steps back and sees Burn, sickening with a crippled god chained to her. A little less than 2,000 years ago, she chose to sleep and forged all her power into a hammer, the one wielded by Kaladin Brood. If he chose, he could break the chains of the crippled god, which would mark the end of the world, but he defies Burn and chooses not to use it. Raced asks if Peron has found knowledge a blessing or a curse. Peron returns to his body, where tensions have lessened. Brood welcomes Rick to his camp, and Quick Ben offers to take the table down. Krupp asks if anyone else is hungry. The Maib attempts to run away from the scene, wishing to end her life, but her body fails her. Crone and Corlat come to her and offer support, which the Maib resents. Kaladin, Brood, and Animander Rake speak in private about Brood's burden. If Burn dies, the crippled god will be able to reach all other wardens and destroy sorcery. Brood tells Rake of Silverfox and the Eye Mass, and there is silence when he is done. Quick Ben wants to study the new card more. Kalor interrupts the conversation, and Quick drops him into a hole in the ground. He, Whiskey Jack, and Silverfox quickly leave the scene. Whiskey Jack and Quick Ben speak. Moranth took the bridge burners away, and if the mercenaries of Kapistan don't make contact within a week, Quick Ben will join them. He's visited every temple in Seer and Pale, and even sacrificed a goat on top of a barrow outside the city. He refuses to tell Whiskey Jack anything. The Malazans march to war against an unknown enemy. Oh, boy. You know, I was thinking we could have just done chapter five in two parts right there. Probably. Now, yeah. see, now you understand why D&J's Epic Quest, their episode was a little under five hours on chapter five. Yeah, I mean, what? Th- all right, this is what I was going to say before we started, but I was just like, because you had mentioned something, uh, I think it was Friday. Yeah, Friday at work. And you're like, wow, that's so great. And I was like, oh, anything wild? And you're like, not necessarily. It's just more there's a lot of really cool things that happen. Like there's nothing mm-hmm. like groundbreaking, I think. I think or I said I think... it's it's nothing insane, but you won't expect it. And I think at that point I was reading when Krupp entered the camp. Yeah. Like when Krupp stepped out of the carriage. Yeah. No, it's like I. that's kind of like when I started to realize I was like, OK, this is what you're meaning. Like when Rake shows up and Krupp show up, it's just like a big gathering. And I was like, okay, yeah, I wasn't expecting everyone else to show up. Mm-hmm. But... It's it, it's like the, uh, well, yeah, it's kind of like what the pitch meeting guy says about Game of Thrones season eight. And then in the last episode, we're going to see the Council of Surviving Characters. Yeah. no. This is the Council the surviving... of Characters from Gardens of the Moon. Exactly. They finally all meet. Yes, they and they're do. more or less on the same side. Yes, but first we have uh, talk and Lady Envy, and uh, we learn some things about Lady Envy here. She used to be a traveling companion of Anamanda Rake. Yep, but that was interesting. Uh, like I just think, I think we. I mean, we've talked about this already, but like when I read that, I was like, it just, just kind of like reminds me again of just how old she is compared to talk. <laughs> oh. Yeah, definitely. And it's just like he is just surrounded by like these like 
elite warriors and like ancient beings. And then you got this one eyed beat up soldier. That's just kind of, that's just there. He's there for the witty comebacks. Yeah. He's there for the witty comebacks. And I think that lady envy has some kind of like flirty mind sorcery going on that he's resisting. Oh, for sure. Even though she insists that her, her affection for him is genuine. But at one point he says something like, do you want me to strike heroic poses against the sunset? And she's like, oh, indeed. Yes, do it, please. You are the you are the hero on the hero's quest, and we are your mortal companions to guide you along. Yeah, I just think it's so funny as well. They get to camp, and she's like, all right, I want my dinner cooked, my bath drawn up. She's like, I want yeah. my tent set up. Bring my clothes in the bathtub. I'll worry about getting the water and the perfumes and stuff. Don't worry. I've got that. She's like, I'll make it nice. Like, yeah, so we... Oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, she'd be a... She'd be that traveling companion on... Oh, she's like... She reminds me of uh, Bilbo in The Hobbit, where he's like, I don't have my handkerchief. It's like that... He just wants to bring... Like, that's her basic comforts and necessities. Well, I was like going to say, she's like Brandon Sanderson, who half-jokingly says that camping for him is a hotel that doesn't have 24-hour room service. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's a better comparison. Uh, we also learn that Tool's sword is invested to an appalling degree. It can th- cut through wards and it can't even be chipped, even though it's a stone sword. Wow, to me. You had it that we learned the magic of Borns in this. It was like, it's, it wasn't too much, lot. but it was enough to like leave me like, okay, that was a lot. <laughs> See, that's, that's always what Erickson does is he's like, oh, you want all the answers? Here's a little dribble. That will yep. satisfy you for a little bit until I give you some more. Yeah. Talk sarcasm just does not go away. Tool appears with an antelope and Talk thinks that he probably scared it to death. And then Envy has one of the Segula start butchering it and says, you have some butchering to do. And he's, he thinks won't be the first time either. Like He just he I did not catch how sarcastic Talk was my first time through. No, I I, I felt like he was pretty sarcastic towards her. He's real sarcastic and sassy, which I think uh, I appreciate. Like with the ascendant, like her. Mm-hmm. Uh, we get some history of metalworking in the world that oh, some yeah. Malazan scholars think iron was only discovered half a thousand years ago, uh, and then talk makes a comment about how magic like replaces technological advancement, yep. which is a point that I've heard um, was like a, a conscious decision by Erickson and Esselmont is that they realize that if you have magic, why do you need to keep inventing stuff? Exactly. Like, I think there's a certain, deg- like a certain point when you just don't need something like, or you just think like, this is convenient enough. Yeah. Like if you have healers that can heal anything with magic, you don't need medicine. If you can teleport through a warren, you don't really need motorized transportation or anything like that. You're not thinking about that. You're thinking about like it's a completely like cultural and societal like shift and focus. Like obviously they're going to have new things. They're going to probably practice some medicine because like the Atatarol and stuff, but like to a certain degree, they're just going to be like, yeah. We'll just magic that. We'll find yep. that Warren. That'll do it. Also get the observation from. Oh, because Lady Envy, when he says that magic replaces te- technological advancement, she's like, and what scholar is speaking through your mouth right now? 
and he grins and says it's a high priest and she says ah cults see any advancement sorceress or mundane as potential threats cults and organizations and things like that don't enjoy progress like you'll always have people fighting against progress no matter what it is yep because they they want the status quo to be maintained Mm -hmm. at that point see i read this on friday which is five, four days ago now because I didn't have time to read it over the weekend. So, uh, yes. Yeah, I mean... uh, oh, go ahead. Oh, no, you can go ahead. Uh, yeah, so Envy wandered the world with Anamanda Rake, Caladan Brood, and a sorceress who ascended to become the Queen of Dreams. Which we haven't is... met yet. No, we have not, but she's been, uh, she's been an ascendant listed in the glossary in the back of every book. I've noticed that. I think it's uh like interesting that we've got more and more of brood. Like at first he didn't seem like too big a deal, I think in some regards, but like the more he keeps being mentioned throughout this whole chapter and then eventually we hit a point where it's like, Oh wow, he uh he's kind of a critical he, piece here. Yeah, he's he's pretty important. I mean, even in I can't remember what chapter it was, but when the Malazans and Brood's forces first meet, we get Crohn's perspective for a bit and she's like brood's an ascendant you forget that sometimes no you definitely do just because like he doesn't he doesn't like uh give off that aura like he feels like a pretty reserved kind of guy in some regards but let's see and then kaladin brood left and was not seen in this world for score centuries so two thousand years just pretty wild Um, to just kind of up and vanish and then when he returned, he carried the hammer. Yep. Drake and Envy parted argumentatively in the days before the Ascendants gathered to chain the Fallen One. Which, uh, the Fallen One's the crippled god, right? The Fallen One is the crippled god, yep. Okay. And he's the... Like, they kept mentioning someone, but he's the dude that injured the one craftsperson in, like, chapter two or three or whatever. Yeah, he's the guy in the tent that... um Killed that guy's legs and then attempted to take Quick Ben as well. Yeah. Okay. He might be a bit of an important piece since the tenth book is called The Crippled God. I think that's just a red herring. I mean, probably. Yeah, and it, he would or, be. Or maybe there's more crippled gods. He's going to be the new race. A big <laughs> deal. And then the, then everyone, then they're just going to sick like the side characters on him for a little bit. And it's just going to be game over. <laughs> And you could be like, well, the world almost ended, but it really wasn't him. It's this other guy in the background. But did you think when we learned that uh, Sanu blocked Tool's first two attacks with half-drawn swords? That was pretty gnarly. And like the when they kept talking about that group of people and how Rake dropped in there and just beat oh, a bunch yeah. of them up it, to the point like... They are so good that they kept fighting back to the point he was just exhausted and just like, all right, I'm going to leave before I get too hurt. Yeah, and he ascended to be seventh in their rankings, and they still hold the position for him and know him as Black Sword. Yeah. It's it's, it's funny. And that is based on a real experience where Ian Esselmont was running the game, and uh, Erickson was playing Anamanda Rake and got a bit too cocky, so Esselmont <laughs> sent him to this island and uh, forced him to fight until he couldn't fight anymore. That's actually pretty cool. That would be so much fun. Like, when I heard that, I'm like, okay, I I just want, like, a short story on that. Like, can we just get Anamander Rake short story on the island? 
you got the short story here. No, no, no. I mean like the actual short story, not the not the synopsis of the short story. <laughs> but no, I thought that was a pretty cool people because when he when he's like, yeah, he blocked me with just half drawn swords. He's like, what? He's like, but you're like Talana Mass. He's like, yeah, no, they're pretty good for like what they are. And then we see he and the other dude get in a duel, but Tool held back and just used only the flat side of his blade. It's like a really good player playing with their left hand in tennis just to add a handicap. And he's like, and still just beats him. Is like, ah, they did well. Did you really just make a sword play analogy with left hand and go for tennis instead of Princess Bride? Yeah. I am not left-handed. No, I, I made the tennis one. Because that's what came to mind off the top of my head for some reason. Disappointed. I'm disappointed now that you mentioned that. I haven't seen that movie in so long, though. That's probably why. I played okay. Pickleball more recently, and I did I that against the... a I friend who was learning. I watched that last month. Oh, see, that would explain it. I haven't seen it in a minute. Uh, we also learned that the fewer marks on their mask, the higher ranked they are, and there's supposedly a Segula out there with a completely blank mask. That'd be pretty neat to me see. Which kind, these... of implies to, kind of implies to me you can fall, but you can't, like... Once you fall, yeah. it's hard to rise again. If you're, if the more you have, the lower you are. So, are they? They're human, right? Or they're not they like are, anything. They are humans. Yes. They're not anything like special, though. They're just highly skilled. Or yeah, I would say that they're special in that they are a society of humans whose entire life and culture is dedicated to swords, sword fighting. Yeah. But I mean, like, there's no, like, magic or, like, special blood or anything. It's just, they're just insane. Yeah. <laughs> and the three of them are the punitive army sent to avenge. I, I mean... think that's comical. Because it's like, like, yes, you're amazing at sword fighting. But, like, I just think, though, it reminds me of Star Wars. All right. And the Clone Wars. You still have a Jedi who can like one be a hundred or a thousand, but they still die in the end most of the time because they're like, as good as they are, they can't take on a whole army, one of them. So when they're like, we're the punitive army, I'm like, well, it's rather comical. What are you going to do? You guys are amazing. But as soon as you face up against too many, you're going to die, obviously. But I mean, I'll, I'll just say you haven't seen everything they can do and I'll leave it there. That's that's what I'm assuming, because I'm just like, Okay, you guys are insanely good, but at the same time, there's three of you against the whole domain where they're having like five ascendants and two massive armies combining to go fight. So, I mean, I'm a little skeptical of that, but... I mean, the the Segula are also pretty isolationist and don't leave their island very often. So there's that to consider as well. Yes, that's true. They have the element of surprise. Uh, and then we learned that Sanu is 14. He's 14? Oh, yeah. How many years talk. since your birth? 14. That's right. He's so young. Wasn't it... What was it? What happened when he was 11 or 12? Did they say something? I don't think Maybe so. I'm mistaken. Hmm. Yeah, Thrill just casually turns to tool. <laughs> they immediately go at it, and it's like... It almost feels like an anime fight where their swords are striking so hard that they're kicking up sparks that let Tox see like flashes of motion. Oh, yeah. One of those Dragon Ball fights where it's just back and forth. <laughs> Too fast for the eye to follow. 
Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then Tool beats the rule with the flat of his blade, breaks some ribs, breaks a wrist, and he's cut up a bit in the process. But as soon as he reveals that he only used the flat of his blade, Mock immediately turns to him and is like, the hell did you just say? He's a, he's stunned. Yep. He's like, oh, now I have to challenge you. And Envy's like, uh, no. No, we're done with challenges. He's like, I'm going to fix them up, but I'm done with this childish behavior. Yep. It was pretty cool, though, to see uh, him show how they made the arrows. I thought that was a fun detail. Oh, yeah. That, like, Tool has not lost that knowledge. Because um, when he started referencing, like, the bone antlers and, like, the breaking of the obsidian, I forget what it's called. But occasionally some videos, like, will pop up on YouTube of some guy that does that. It's pretty insane, like, how kind of intricate and they can make some of those, like, obsidian heads just how small and some of the detail work so we started describing it, i was like that's actually really cool that yeah, he man like erickson managed to get that much detail in there's like a misconception about technology and like tools and stuff before metal was discovered that they were yeah. simple and it's like no they took like they took what you could do to stone with stone to insane degrees of technical difficulty yeah like the one of the most recent clips i saw the dude was making like ninja stars like kind of intricate ninja stars out of obsidian. And I was like, I thought it you wouldn't be able to get like that uniform of a shape and that like small areas like broken down without it like completely shattering. So that was really cool to see. But then he'd like start chucking against a watermelon and a pumpkin. And I know obsidian sharp, both kind of the force of that star behind it. That thing like penetrated quite deep into some of those like completely slicing off chunks. I was like, wow, that's sharp. It's pretty wild. Did you have anything else about talk and envy? Not much else I can think of off the top of my head. Just that we didn't get to see much of them after this. I was a little sad about that. Yeah. So we get uh, Whiskey Jack, Quickben, and Mallet. They're on the same hill that Hairlock was chopped in half on uh, after the Siege of Pale and Gardens of the Moon. Yep. And I love Whiskey Jack asks the two mages to start like describing Peron's affliction and what's going on with him and they start trading off sentences and Whiskey Jack's like last time I was here I had to hear Quick Ben and Kalam doing this that was bad enough please stop I know I thought it was interesting that Erickson chose to revisit that hilltop they kind of have the reflected visited again yeah almost kind of symbolic for Whiskey Jack and Quick Ben yeah I think of kind of how far they've come and what got him there because it was a uh, it's pretty sad that they lost that many bridge burners that quickly yeah uh we find out the reason for prawn's sickness he's near ascendancy but he keeps fighting it and trying to escape it and the more he does that the sicker he gets just accept it dummy come on yeah, except it get to be an ascendant except an unknown huge role in this massive game with gods involved yeah you'll figure it out don't worry it comes with a, a guidebook a brief welcome to Ascendancy. Here's what you need to know, the basics. <laughs> hey, Khaled and Brood and Anna Rick are right there. They can teach him everything he needs to know. I'd be like, yep. Like, look, here's the deal, pal. Mortal life, it's kind of lame. You don't have to worry about it too much. Just stick around with us. Just have friends that are immortal as well. Don't get too attached to the mortals. <laughs> I think the only other thing I have is that Quick Ben is like, there have been other sorceresses that have called themselves Nightchill. And I mean, 
we know it's the same person, but he doesn't. Oh okay. yeah, that they've they've all been just like because she's a she's an ascendant or whatever. Yeah, she's the elder goddess, sister of cold night. So it's her every time popping back up. It's uh, it's kind yeah. of like, did you see the Eternals? Mm-mm. Okay, uh, th- so they're immortal, and Kumail Nanjiani's character, uh, he's the latest. His character is quote unquote the latest, like descendant in a long line of like this Bollywood actor empire. And it's just been him the same. It's just been him doing it every generation or so throughout the last century or so of Bollywood. It's funny. It's actually pretty good. So she is the famous Bollywood actress that keeps popping up. Exactly. Getting torn apart by demons outside pale. That was movie magic. Or being a Senate, you'd think she wouldn't die or get destroyed like that. I mean, you know, she did live on what I also think is important to remember, because remember when uh, Fenner gets pulled down in Deadhouse Gates, Heberick says something like any hunter with a spear can kill him now. Gods, when they're on Mm -hmm. the mortal plane, are just as vulnerable as anyone else. Yeah. And Nightchill had been inhabiting a mortal body for a while. Rookie mistake. She must have not got the premium ascendancy insurance. Because she only got half, she only got like barely a life pack. Yeah, 200,000 year old Elder God, rookie mistake. I don't know. It's like you would have thought she would have known this by now after seeing a few of her buddies have uh, their immortal lives uh, cut short. Or maybe she saw it coming and just let it happen. Mm, Not too, but maybe she got bored. Anything else about the hilltop? Yeah. We're still not even into the meat of this chapter yet. I say I don't, I don't have much else there. Okay, uh, Whiskey Jack and Dujik talk and discuss their situation. Uh, Quick Ben is gonna try to contact the mercenary company in Kapistan. Whiskey Jack won't stand aside if Silver Fox, if Kalor tries to kill Silver Fox, and uh, they they're kind of not comfortable if they have to fight alongside the Talani Mass again. Yeah, it doesn't sound like anyone really likes them. I wonder why. Is it part to do with like being the undead, turning into dust, and being bloodthirsty and hunting down an entire race to extinction? Well, being undead, uh, Whiskey Jack and Dujek fought alongside them in Seven Cities, and Whiskey Jack makes a comment like, Kellenved kept them on a tight leash other than that debacle at Aaron. Yep. And if you remember in Deadhouse Gates, we had the description of like dozens of barrows outside Aaron filled with innocent citizens that the Talani mass killed. Isn't so that that big a deal? There's that holding them back as well. If you're that worried, just be like, hey guys, there's this whole new Panion Dominion or whatever. Yeah, I'll should just go take a quick trip over there and see what we find. You know, just just as a favor. And then just let that run its course. No, I think it's uh, pretty cool though. I remember reading the part where Whiskey Jack you know, stands up again and just plants a sword there. He's like, hey, oh, yeah, I don't know if you want to be doing that. He's like, yeah, no, I'm going to do it. Yep. Whiskey like, Jack Whiskey... proving again. He's the cool uncle. Uh, I do also. Uh, Whiskey Jack's like, wait, Callow's visited you, do Jack, hasn't he? And he's like, yeah, he uh, he he kind of got rid of his anger towards you. He said he hasn't been physically struck in centuries or so he claims. He also said mm-hmm. he deserves it. And Whiskey Jack's like generous, very good of him. Oh, I thought it was uh, pretty cool how Rake showed up, though, as a dragon. He made quite the entrance. Yes, you keep jumping ahead. 
Oh, that's ahead. That's way ahead. That's not way ahead. Yeah, we've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven sections left before Animanda Rake gets here. No, that all happened at the same time. I'm getting confused then. Then what part are we at? So this is Dujek and them were like in defense of the girl. Yeah, so, so that's this is just Whiskey Jack and Dujek meeting before the emissaries arrive. Mm. And then before uh, Krupp arrives, we've got the Mibe, Corlett, and Brood uh, discussing Silver Fox, talking about how kind of disturbing Silver Fox is. Brood is uh, pretty compassionate and sorry towards the Mibe because that kind of sucks. Yeah, she's not doing too well. Um, I do like what the Mibe brings up here. Uh, bone and flesh can only hold so much power. The limit is always finite. For beings as, such as you and Animander Rake, and you too, Corlat, you possess the centuries of living necessary to contain what you command. Silverfax does not, or rather her memories tell her she does, but her child's body denies those memories. Thus, vast power awaits her, and to fully command it, she must be a grown woman, and even then. And then Corlat says, ascendancy is born of experience, and experience tempers. Yeah, it doesn't sound too pleasant for her. But that's that's interesting. Like ascendancy is born of experience. I know. I thought that was interesting too. When I read that, I was like, "What what kind of experience are you talking about?" Then is this just like a progressive experience leveling up, like in a video game? The more you get, then I finally hit the Im- immortality status, the ascendancy status. I will say there are multiple ways to become an ascended, and that's that's all I'll say. I've noticed that there's multiple ways. You can, be, you can be born into it. You can go to the Azath house, do that, get, go to the Azath house, find the realtor for warrants, say, hey, I need a warrant to be in charge of, and they <laughs> take you to one. Or you're Piran and just happen to fall into it. Piran's also has something to do with the hound's blood being inside him, which are already ascendants. Yeah, so you inherit it through another ascendant. So Silver Fox, though, is she, she, Silver Fox is her own person though, right? With three Sil- other beings in her. Yeah, Silver Fox is her own being containing the souls of three others inside her, yeah. Okay, that's why I figured. She's pretty gnarly. Then the Druidistan representatives arrive and Krupp steps out. And I, oh my gosh, I would love to just read everything Krupp says out loud here on the podcast, but that would be way too long. Especially this part. He talked so much. It was so good, the, though. The more I reread Malazan, the more I love Krupp so much. I was uh, I was really happy when I was reading it, and I was like, I have a feeling. It's like, plump person. I was like, I have a feeling I know who this is. Please tell me it's the <laughs> yes. right person. And it was Krupp, yep. and I was like, yes. <laughs> and Kaladin Brood calls him representative of Tururistan, and Krupp's like, representative of Jerudistan like surprised oh indeed yes that is me yes Krupp is the represent the representative from Jerudistan the Maid recognizes Krupp from her dream where Silver Fox was born and Kellett and Brood asks Krupp which one it is and he's like hmm ambivalence uncertainty all anathema to Krupp of Jerudistan possibly then again possibly not he's like the Cheshire cat Mouse and balls, Alice in Wonderland. Jeez, Krupp, what in Hood's name are you doing here, dear friend Marilio? Have you climbed in the world with this new profession, or perhaps sidled sideways? Marilio and Cole were the 
people out that were like injured, right? They were trying to escort. Uh, uh, so so Call was the one who his leg got cut by Lorne. He was the former lord who the mm-hmm. Simtall lady stole everything from him and he became a drunk. Yep. But yeah, Marilio also Marilio helped get Cole back into his status as a yeah. member of the council. So I was trying to remember who was who because I was like, I remember these guys. Yeah, Marilio is the dandy that seduces noble ladies. Ah, that's right. Yes. Um, let's see. I am here as representative of Master Baruch. Cole. Oh, indeed. The alchemist sent you on his behalf, did he? Well, not in so many words, of course. Baruch and I are such closeness in friendship that words are unnecessary. I know. Especially now. <laughs> Cole talking to Kaladin Brood, the presence of this this crop was unintended. Like, he doesn't know how to describe Krupp other than, like, this Krupp. Yeah. This guy... I just love how just kind of, like, he's just there to just say anything, and they just don't understand what's going on or who's who at this point. I feel like... Like, I could just imagine being, like, Brood or Dujek or Whiskey Jack or any of them just being like, what? <laughs> what is going on? These Dirigistan oh. people are a little strange. Oh, there's so many lines. What outrageous lies have you uttered now, Krupp? <gasps> Krupp and the truth are lifelong partners, friend Cole. Indeed, we only yesterday celebrated our 40th anniversary. Only 40? It's disgraceful. <laughs> Crone to Krupp. You, sir, should have been a great raven. And you, a dog. A dog? Only so that I might ruffle you behind the ears, my dear. Ruffle? Very well, not a dog then. A parrot? A parrot? Perfect! Rupp is just so good. He just breaks all the all the social barriers. Just does what he wants. My dog's freaking trying to come in the room. But yeah, then they all sit down. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, Crone's trying to get in. Better let her in. Oh, Uh, yes. Okay, (laughs) I'll leave that. I'll leave that in the episode now. That was a good one. Yep. Uh, yeah, but then everyone sits down at a table made from a wagon bed because the bridge burner stole Brood's table. They borrowed it. And uh, Krep just interjects himself into the meeting and is like, so, I've got the perfect solution for how to supply your armies, the Trigal Trade Guild. And Cole's like, you've invested in them, haven't you? That's That's not, that's not important. And then I love how they're like, well, then... They're like, we've had some issues with this bridge. And Krupp is just like completely destroys that argument of like, well, the bridge is only there if you need it. You know, there's other ways to go. And Dujek, I think it was Dujek was like, you know, he does have a point. We we don't need to go that direction. We only need to go through the north. It's yeah. like, we don't have to deal with the bridge. Uh, there's so many one-liners from Krupp. My patience with you is growing very thin, Krupp. Alas, I can only dream of thin. It's true. He only can. That love of food. What is all this? Baruch doesn't even know you're here. A minor breakdown in communication. Nothing more. The alchemist's desire was plain to Krupp. He assures you one and all. While Krupp may well and with some justification claim sole credit for the impending proposal, he must bow down to the virtue of truthfulness and therefore acknowledge Baruch's minor yet vital contribution. Baruch was killed, right? Like, no, Baruch, Baruch wasn't killed. Oh He's no, that's alive. the 
that's the other dude I'm thinking of. Yeah. Okay. Because at first when I read it, I was like, I was thinking it was his uncle, Crocus's uncle, for some oh, reason. Yeah. That's no. what crossed my mind. And I was like, how did that... How do they not get it? How do they not get it? He's not dead. And then the second time I was like, oh, wait, it's the other dude. It's the old guy. Yeah, Mammoth was Crocus's uncle that died. Yeah, it was Mammoth. Uh, yeah, and then Krupp is like, so I've laid it before you. I'm going to enjoy some cakes and you all will come to the right conclusion. I feel like Krupp is just, he's like, he's like the, like kind of like the meta sense of like him controlling the story. He's the narrator to it all. Which I love. It's just awesome. Because like I can just like the whole time like I, I'm reading this, I'm just imagining being at this meeting. Like that's what I'm oh. imagining reading as I'm just like sitting there watching the two representatives, the actual ones trying to do their job. And they know Krupp and Krupp's just there kind of like interjecting and just doing his own thing. And you're like, okay, yeah, Krupp's making a good point though. Like I think we should go with that idea. And the other two guys are just like, but then what are we doing here? <laughs> like, what about our idea? We we came all this way. Yep. Sitting out a wagon bed that probably still has some straw on it. All these powerful people just sitting there. Uh, Crone gets bored with the meeting, so she leaves and she finds the the she finds Brood's table, sneaks under it. The bridge burners are sitting there and they're doing a reading and it implies that Seven Cities is about to rise in rebellion. As we know happens. Is it? I think one of them recognizes the assassin of House Shadow is Kalam. Oh yeah. Kalam plays a part in something. Yeah, I wonder I wonder what role he could play in uh the rebellion that's to come. I have no idea. It's like he's just he's a minor side character with a weird story love arc. There's nothing important that happens to him. No, 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 no. Uh Peron goes to find the table. Prone recognizes him. Um, and then Peron orders the four soldiers to take it back to Brood's tent. And they're like, there's only like an hour until sunrise. Yep, that should give you just enough time to take the table back and pack your stuff. And I love how he he breaks up the group and has Picker come with him. And oh, like, yeah. And she's like, you're going to make the four of them carry it? And he's like, well, they did steal it in the first place. So like, they can figure it out. Yeah, the mind was like... That's that's a little harsh. And he's like, oh, no, no, no. They stole it in the first place. That's on them. That's their fault. I imagine any time I read about the bridge birders, I imagine like just these like hyper intelligent individuals, but a complete disregard for safety and like social order in some aspects. And they're just there to do their own thing. I would not put Hedge or Spindle in the camp of super intelligent I well, I don't think in like terms of like scholarly sense or another. I think in just terms of like they're like really intelligent in their own way. You know what I mean? Like in that specific thing they do, like you ask them a question, it's going to be like basically like a Shakespeare version of like, you're like, I don't understand what you're saying, but you sure know what you're doing. Type of thing. <laughs> yeah, they're smart in like I've met tons of people that are super smart, but like have a kind of rough way of speaking don't like follow all of the quote-unquote normal rules of culture or society but they are super intelligent and yeah. fun to be around that's why i imagine some of these bridge burners as just because i mean they went and installed this at its table to play uh a rigged gambling game to win a bunch of money in, <laughs> in which they lost 
<laughs> they lost it all. <laughs> See, I told you they're not super intelligent. Hey, they didn't know the table was a was a new card, all right? They didn't have Fiddler there. That Perron guy. Always coming in causing troubles. Uh, what did you think of the plan that Whiskey Jack gives to Perron that they're going to try to negotiate with the uh, the bar guests to try to get them to come help them? I thought that was a thought. I was thinking, like, good luck, guys. <laughs> I don't know much about the bar guest, but from what I remember, they remind me a bit of the Talana Mass and a bit of, like, the warrior nature. They are definitely a warrior culture. We see a we see three of them later on in the next chapter. Yep. Um, but yeah, some warrants are gonna take the bridge burners to the base of their mountains and trots the bar guest and whiskey jack squad is gonna take command and try to negotiate with them. And then Anna Amanda Rake appears. And he appears. See that whole I thought Krupp and Rake came at the same time. I read this like two hours ago though. I feel like that's pretty sad. I couldn't remember that timeline that much a little bit. I mentioned in the summary, it's one of the best descriptions ever. Um, I had never remembered this description until it was brought up on the DLC uh, book club. So shout out to them. Rake was an atmosphere, a heart thudding, terror threaded presence. No one could ignore, much less escape violence, antiquity, somber pathos and darkest horror. The Son of Darkness was a gelid eddy in immortality's current, and the Mibe could feel, crawling beneath her very skin, every rivy spirit awakened in desperation. Sounds like a charming dude. He is a heart-thudding, terror-threaded atmosphere of her presence. Like, what other description do you need? I mean, like, I feel like the second you see, like, you hear, like, the big, loud, like, windstorm, like, just his physical presence, like blowing over tents and stuff and like scaring horses and everything like he he has a way of announcing himself just by showing up and then after he changes just like just him that's him you just know rake is here like he is just so cool he gets cooler and cooler every scene we see him like the first time we hear about him book one they're like you got some of the most powerful wizards in dujek's army like oh crap this is who we're fighting like, and that's all we know. It's like, he's just scary. Next time we see him, we find out he's tall, has his hair, his sword and everything. He's awesome. And then later on, we see him. Turns out he's a dragon later on. But then we find out like midway through the book, he has this amazing sword. Now it's like we see him actually be the dragon and everything. And just the presence within like a battle heart and like army. It's pretty sweet. Hands down, one of my favorite people in this book series. It's a given. Yeah, definitely. He just has so much presence, like Kalor is, when he first appears, Kalor is like slowly stepping towards him, making points, and the and Anamanda Rake just murmurs like, Kalor, approach further at your peril. <laughs> and then I love uh, that. everyone is standing with Kalor and Brood to protect Silver Fox, and Rake says to Kalor, it seems you stand alone. It was ever thus. It's like, ooh, hitting yeah. him where it hurts. Uh, that scene... Just um, Calor reminded me of uh, what's his name? Is it Wormtongue in Lord of the Rings? Yeah, Wormtongue. Like, just like it didn't like. I don't think of Calor as that, but it reminded me of that scene, or just a little bit of him. Like you kind of see that like weaselly nature or something of like I don't know. Just he's there for himself, and once someone actually powerful steps in the room, he kind of like 
tries to get out and approach slowly, you know, but make sure he can still get away, you know? Yeah. I mean, to play devil's advocate here for a minute for Kalor, I kind of can't blame him for hating having that much resentment because Night Chill is one of the ones that cursed him. And yeah. uh, so he's immortal, but he can't ever ascend and he's just kind of stagnant. Yeah. So that would suck. But he's going about it in the wrong way. Oh, yeah. 100%. Rake tries to learn more about Silver Fox with a sorcery and she just swats him aside. And uh, tensions get very tense. Just a little. Uh, just a little. Extremely tense for a little bit. And then who is there to alleviate the tension but Krupp hanging on to a flying table? Once again, Erickson's swinging between the tension and the humor and suddenly it's like something out of a cartoon with I imagine Krupp is just this literal circle of a man like hanging onto a table. I know. Like well it describes him in his silks and like his nice clothes, just eating like desserts and pastries and stuff. Literally stuffing them into his face, yeah. Like you it's like him just mumbling out of his mouth, like kind of like that muffled scream of terror. <laughs> like what is happening? <laughs> Someone help Krupp it reminded me of a, I don't know if you ever saw this, but the Hotel Transylvania years ago, the flying table I never scene. saw that. But I remember that scene because I just kept thinking of that, just like the table flying around in that scene, as well as this one. I was like, I thought that was pretty funny. Doesn't Quick Ben come to the scene or is that later? Might get my timelines mixed up. No, that that's pretty much right now. Peron just vanishes between steps and appears before everyone else recognizes himself from buckles and then quick ben is like uh everyone let's let's calm down there's a lot of power here who knows what attacking each other right now could bring rake is like who are you just a soldier don't have to worry about me a quick ben does not want anyone to know anything about him not at all what wasn't he was he the one holding the standard at this point no he no quick ben was in the bridge burner camp and then ran over to the where ran the leaders over. are when okay it's uh it's our tanthos our tanthos is the malazan standard bearer her local or her lochel is the one for brood okay okay i've got because right. uh it was mindy or someone mentioned that they noticed i thought it was the standard bear like something like drew her attention like he oh, was yeah. magical yep. or something like he was hiding something but then so no, it made me I think like I see nothing was, now. Yeah. Sorry, I keep cutting you off. No, you're good. Our it my side's lagging a little bit occasionally. Like you're just slightly delayed, not too bad, but we're good. Yeah, so then Pran is in the Azath house in Darugistan. Yeah, what did you think? We learned a lot here. It was okay. Just kidding. No, I thought uh like it threw me off for a little bit at the start just because like I was like, well, where is he? But then as soon as it starts explaining itself, I was like, oh, OK, this is interesting. And it's like you got the two. What's her name? Vulcan, Vulcran. Vorkin and Vorkin. Yeah. Oh, these names are all so close to something real. And then it's not <laughs> fantasy authors. Um, And then the other dude, I don't remember his name, but um. I was like, oh, yeah, I recognize them. So I was like, oh, we must be, you know, here. But then Race shows up and he's yeah. just chilling. He's like, hey, Peron, what's going on? And he's like, wait a second. Aren't you the, the tyrant? And he's like, yeah, I'm kind of stuck here now. 
I'm going to be here for a while. Like I'm like the guardian or the steward of it by the sound yeah. of it. Or he's the guardian, like a uh, Gothos, like a yeah. dad. And so I was like, Oh, he's like, do you want to come in? He's like, let me show you around. Obviously you can just walk right in. Like apparently you have something to do here. He's, he's so sarcastic too. Oh, just so sarcastic. And like anything, he's like, well, do I go forward? He's like, but I have to kill you. He's like, what do you mean? He's like, well, it's a waste of time then if I had to bring you all this way. <laughs> it cannot be undone. A master is needed. So here you are. I don't want it. I weep a river of tears for your plight, mortal. He's like, you don't want it? Look where I am. I won't have your cheery company next time. How will I cope? Miserably, if there was justice in the world. I'm like, I need, I need, we, we need Krupp here for a little bit just to add yeah. to it. All the wars are won. I don't want to think about any of this. Then don't. He's yeah, like, I just so... want the one thing I'm in charge of right now, this war. And he's like, well, that's too bad. Yeah, there was a, there was a meme on the dust of memes subreddit the other week that was like, a, or maybe it was one from a few months ago that I found while scrolling through, but it was like raced in gardens of the moon. And it's like this super scary, like werewolf type looking thing. And then it's uh, raced in memories of ice. And it's the sarcastic cat that's always staring at the two girls. Oh yeah. It's such a different tone change for raced, which I think is awesome. And then we get the hold of beasts. What do you think? A lot. Uh, There's a lot that that implies. But before he goes in, Peron sees like this field of tiles that are all different cards in the deck. And it very much is similar to uh, Fiddler's group when they were traveling through the Azath. Like it was showing different physical places in the world. This one is showing Peron all the. Yeah. All the parts of the deck. But this, so this sounds like though, I mean, it dives into a little bit once he starts kind of piecing it together. But like the cards, those are all like different gateways to the Warrens and the holds and stuff. But each, not all of them are active anymore, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, exactly. This all goes back to uh, Peron and Silver Fox's conversation last chapter about yeah. how the holds and the Warrens and the deck of dragons and the Azath all might be the same. Yeah. I thought the the one line it was um, houses and holds the first efforts at building mm-hmm. when he's talking about like their the homes but then I think it applies up well I like the warns and stuff it's interesting like how Peron uh, happens into this power of like it says he can travel at will into each and every card of every deck that ever existed yep so it's like he's like I can go see all the past DLC. The kind that I didn't get before <laughs> I was born. He's like, I get to nope. play the older versions. I was going to say, it's not DLCs. It's like he gets to play the alpha and beta versions of the game. That's true. The holds are game one, and then uh, the decks is game two. So then there's some different versions in between each one. There you go. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so he goes into the holds, the uh, hold of beasts. What did you make of all of that? The two thrones it being the original origin of uh, the power that the IMAS had before the ritual. It explained a lot, I think. It explained kind of like the brutality of the Talanimas, the the hold of the beasts. So it's pretty old. It's a hold. Yeah. But um, I think it explained because it sounds like it's a kind of Ice Age-ish type of thing. 
with some yeah, more. I, yeah. We've talked about that earlier too, where we had ice age an ice age with glaciers. And yeah. in this one, it was just the Jagut and the Tulanimus wars that caused ice age. Yeah. And so like, I think it explains kind of like that primal nature and need to kind of fight like the, the sense of alpha. And like, it reminds me of like, you know, wolves, tigers, lions, kind of those mentalities of like, they fight to see who's on top, you know, Although I did see recently that they're finding that the idea of an alpha male in like wolf and pack cultures actually doesn't exist most of the time, that wolves are often a very healthy family dynamic with a mother and father. Then that would make sense, the two thrones. There you go. There you go. I think also explaining some of the IMAS and their eternal sadness is that they have literally outlived their own gods. Which is kind of wild to me. That like... The whole concept, once again, of immortality, quote unquote, immortality, ascendancy, is still pretty limited. Like, it reminds me of in Percy Jackson when Percy learns about the demigods and he's like, wait a second. So you're telling me a regular bullet can kill me, but also the celestial bronze or whatever can kill me? They're like, yep, you can die by both. And he's like, but a mortal won't die by my sword. And they're like, nope. And then the monster won't die by the mortal's gun. Nope. He's like, so you're telling me I'm more likely to die than either one of them? They're like, yep. <laughs> Later in the series, doesn't that... he also watch the god Pan like die and fade away? Yeah. Because uh, Pan, like they destroyed nature too much or something. Yeah. And so Pan just dies. But like it was one of those things, like that's the th- thought that loosely comes to mind. Kind of that same thing. It's like you're immortal but you're not. It's like, I'm like, oh, this is a, take it with a grain of salt, everyone. Yeah, so we we get all of that sadness, and then we learn about Kaladin Brood and his hammer, which in some ways is, I feel like is equally as sad and kind of terrifying. Mm-hmm. He's just tasked with holding the god's power because he's the he's the war in 10, right? Yeah, he, he uses the war in ten, tennis, Tens, something like that. T e n n e s. Yeah. So uh, the crippled god has been infecting her, and um, a little less than two thousand years ago, she went to sleep, thus burned sleep, and uh, forged all of her power into the hammer that's wielded by Brood. And uh, yep. so either he wields it, breaks the chains of the crippled god, which is the end of the world. Or he waits for Burn to die, which is the end of the world. Yeah. And I think that's pretty gnarly that that's like his decision. She's like, here you go. I'm going to go take a nap. Here's the hammer. Yeah. She's like, she's slowing down by going to sleep. She's slowing the infection so that the world doesn't end quite as soon. Yeah. Because she can just kind of focus everything on that. But uh, I thought it was interesting, though, that it brings up that the Talana mass. After their ritual, they be they switch to it sounds like the warrant of dust. Uh Talan, that, which Talan. We will learn more. So Raphael. Yeah. Well, I mean, it says like something relating to dust in this part, which I mean makes sense if it like from what I remember, they like collapse into a pile of dust and like can move between things. Yeah. So So I will also say Erickson also uses a lot of unreliable narrator. And so if a character thinks they've discovered something, it may not always be fully correct. 
Mm, makes sense. Uh, yeah, and then Race is like, so what do you think? Was that a blessing or a curse? Are you crying or are you laughing? He's like, do I get the option of both? Because, uh, yeah, that'd be pretty terrible to learn, I think. Especially if you don't want it. Yeah, and then Peron, Peron returns to his body and chooses not to be a gossip and will just let Brood have his have his secret. He's not like spin around. Guys, he wills the hammer. Yeah, Listen. No, can you can you imagine what that would do to people if they knew? I know. It's that it, would... I, it's almost the same reason Quick Ben hasn't told anyone about Burn. I know. Cuz I feel like I feel like it's a smart thing for them to be like, "All right, let's deal with this first. See like if we can even deal with this." Cuz like if they don't, like hypothetically, they're like, "Hey, guys, let's focus." Burn's going to die in a few decades. <laughs> like, we're almost out of time. It's a few decades away. <laughs> it, they can do that, but then they have to deal with possibly the Seven Cities rebellion at the same time because the Seven Cities would be like, we don't believe you. They fight the domain. The Panion, Panion people are like, we don't believe you. We have our own religion thing. And it's like, you got to deal with some things first or else. Yeah. Also, an interesting thing is brought out when Brood and Rake speak that, like, the at the heart of the Panion is the Warren of Chaos, mm-hmm. which is the which is what the crippled god uses. Yeah, I thought uh, is interesting though that Rake and Brood are kind of like just because like they know each other, and he's like, "So how's the the, the hammer life going?" And he's like, ah, <laughs> "Wow, it's not going great." He's like, so humanity's almost done. He's like, yeah, not too much longer. The crippled god would kill sorcery, but would that be such a bad thing? He's like, the destruction of an entire thing? Yeah, maybe. Could be. Um, I do love that uh, Quick Ben offers to bring the table down, and Rake is like, ah, so you're not just a soldier, and Quick is like, don't try to find out more about me, and Rake's like, okay. I'll respect that. He's like, don't worry about it. And Krebs like, is anyone else hungry? Let's go eat. After all that, I'm. I would be so hungry after all that flying around on a table. Goodness, that's a lot of work well, to fly around on a table. I think Krep is literally never not hungry. Probably not. He's a hobbit. There's. Likes I I don't really subscribe to this theory, but there's been like half joking theories thrown out there that does Krep use food to sustain like magic or something? Oh, maybe. That's a good theory. And then, oh, the uh, the heartbreaking scene comes next with the Maib running away or trying to yep. run away, but her can't. body's too old and she can't. And uh, Corona Corlat come to her and offer support, which she resents, which people in torment often do. And uh, that moment where she just screams out that her daughter has stolen away her life. It's like, oh, it's brutal. I mean. She's so young as well. That's, I think, the hard part. Yeah, she's literally like 21. And it's like, and she's like, my daughter stole in my life. And her daughter knows, but like, she doesn't know to what extent. Like, it doesn't, like, she's too yeah. young to fully realize it. And Silver Fox can't stop it. They discuss nope. that, that Talion is more, like, permanent than other Warrens or something like that. And so what's done cannot be undone. Yeah, And she's like, even if you found a way, what am I going to do? Be an 80-year-old for six more decades until I die? Be pretty miserable. That sounds awful. Yeah. 
I mean, especially, I mean, we work in a pharmacy, we've mentioned this, but like seeing some 80 year olds where you're like, wow, how are you living still with some of the stuff you're on? Or it's like the things yeah. you need to, like they need to take just to kind of keep going. You're like, is it even worth it at that point? You know, like your quality yeah. of life is just not good. But also I think what Corona and Corlett do here is also a great example of what to do for someone that you care about. That's in a tough spot. Like just be there, support, support them and be like, I will not support you in taking your lo- taking your own life, but anything yeah. else you need, I'm here for. Exactly. No, I thought that was very well done because she's like, well, if rage is what's going to fuel you, that's just gonna, what's going to fuel you. She's like, come on. Yeah. Which is what the Maya has been actively fighting against. Like she's been consciously choosing not to hate her daughter. And I think a damn yeah. might have just broke. I know. Which is just pretty heartbreaking. Yeah. I love how we don't even get the rest of what Brood tells Rake. Like, tell me a silver fox in the eye mask. And he talks and then they're just silent for a bit when he's done. Like, I just wonder what's going through their heads. But we never get it. We we don't always get what's going through a lot of people's heads, which is understandable. Yeah. Understandable. But Erickson is very, very conscious of who he picks to uh, see out of their eyes, I guess you could say. Yeah, I just want quick bin. And then, again, speaking of swinging between intense stuff and humor, right after Krupp asks if anyone's hungry, then we get the Mibe scene, and then Brood and Rick having a tense conversation, and then we get quick bin dropping Calor into a hole. Yeah, that one took me a second. I had to reread that because I was like, wait, what just happened? Because Silver Fox like gasps, and I was like, wait. I totally missed that. It, and I was like, that was amazing. I'm so happy he did that. Keller walks up and interrupts the conversation. He tells Quickben, you, wizard, are a hoarder of souls. I am a man who releases souls. Shall I break the chains within you? An easy thing to leave you helpless in Quickben's. Even easier to make a hole in the ground. Oof. He drops him into the hole. And it feels like a Tom and Jerry moment where Jerry is digging. Dig, digging? Jerry has digging, digging a hole. He's digging a Jerry, hole. Jerry has dug a hole for Tom. He falls into it and he I can just imagine the angry noises as he like huffs and puffs his way up the side of the hole. It's like the uh you know do you remember in Home Alone the bandits, like the noises they make? <laughs> like the like just the angry, frustrated sounds that they make trying to like get back up the stairs or something. It's it's when he gets shot in the nuts with the BB gun rifle. Yes, there you go. Yeah, that's just Cowler just trying to get out of the hole. Because I was going to say, it reminds me of Looney Tunes. There's the two Looney Tunes scene. You got Krupp flying on the table, and then you got Cowler dropping just straight down in a hole. And then everyone's like running away as fast as they can. Wishy Jack's like, "Uh, I think we should leave. Yeah, you're right. Let's go. Yeah, but that that scene in Home Alone, it's totally Joe Pesci wanting to swear. Like for the part, but he can't because he's in a oh, kids movie. Yeah, he's just <laughs> such a good scene. Yeah, what did you think, or did you think anything of Calor calling Quick Ben a hoarder of souls? Uh, oh, I definitely thought about it. I mean, Green Erickson and even Sanderson, I've tried to pick up on more just anything anyone says. <laughs> so it made me just think. I was like, well, I know he holds a lot of Warrens, but what does that imply though? A holder of souls. That's what I was trying to figure out. Order of souls. The uh, the witch of tennis that he visits in Pale earlier calls him twelve souls. 
So is he um is he like a silver fox case about twelve people? I mean Rafo. Obviously, obviously. That'd be a good explanation, maybe. And then the uh the next day the Malazans start marching and Quick Ben and Whiskey Jack are just talking and Whiskey Jack's okay. So what are you up to, Quick? And he's like, Who, me? I'm not doing anything. You visited every temple in the city, and people saw you sacrificing a goat on top of a barrow. And Quick Ben's like, Okay, that one was desperate. <laughs> Sorry, the, the souls just disappeared, you know? He's like, I was trying to figure out what happened. He's like, Don't change the no. subject. He's like, That wasn't it. He's like, Fine, I'll tell. He's like, Well, just tell me when you're ready. He's like, Okay, yeah, fine. Yeah, I think Whiskey Jack has worked enough with Quick Ben that he knows that he's not going to get a darn thing out of him. Nope. That was the longest we've ever spent on one chapter. That was an hour and a half. Yeah, I mean, a few things happened. Yeah. Do you have anything else about this chapter just as a whole? I don't know. I really liked it just because it was um, it was just cool to see a lot more of like the deeper lore once again of Malaz. And I think that's one of my favorite things to read. So like Peron scene, just like minor details and notes of everyone. I was like, exactly what i like this is cool yep uh definitely my favorite chapter in the book so far are we good to move on to chapter six yeah let's do it chapter six is all gruntle and crew what a weird chapter this was (laughs) chapter six gruntle approaches salto one of the oldest cities on the vision plane it used to be a bustling trade port until the river's course changed and it has been in a centuries-long decline ever since the group moves through Twist Face Passage, Gruntle recalling a night of bloodshed there years ago. A group of criminals offers escort to them, which has been arranged by Karuli. Karuli speaks to the assembled crime bosses of Saltoan, urging them to drive away the Panion priests in a war of information. We learn of the children of the Dead Seed, and also that Gruntle suspects that Karuli is a priest. Stunny and Nectara have some fun. In the morning, Gruntle hangs back to make sure that no bandits follow Karuli's carriage. Along the track, he comes upon a group of dead thieves whose metal has been melted. He catches up with the carriage and learns of three Bargast at a way stop. Karuli invites the Bargast to travel together. The trio are here investigating reports of demons. Gruntle pries more information out of Hattan about the demons. They are two-legged with talons like an eagle, and their arms are blades. Hattan says that she will ride Gruntle tonight, and of course, he can't refuse such an elegant offer. The next day, Hattan explains her people's custom of holding spirits down by burying trees upside down on hills. They come upon Beauchelaine and Corbel Birch's carriage, wrecked by giant swords, but with no bodies visible. The two trunks within reveal a collection of slate tablets with arcane symbols carved into them, and a collection of organs fashioned into a puppet. The pair approach on foot and recount the attack and how they barely escaped. They lose to Bargast's spirit as well. The two groups agree to an alliance until they reach Kapistan. Hattan takes Harlow and Sunny takes Neetok into the darkness before the demons attack. Karuli recognizes them as Kachain Shamal. The Bargast lances take down one, and Beauchelaine and Corbel Birch deal with two more. One comes up behind them, and Gruntle pushes Karuli out of the way, his swords and wrists shattering as he takes a blow. Harlow takes the follow-up blow and reels away. Gruntle is kicked and pierced by the creature's talons. He lays on the ground, the light going out as he feels himself dying. So, um... These are the dinosaurs with swords for hands. I know. I was so excited when we got them. I thought they were going to come like a book six or seven. The uh, the only other time that you've mentioned them on the podcast, I cut them out of the episode just in case there was anyone listening that didn't know. Oh, smart. But yes. 
giant raptors with swords for arms. Pretty cool. Yeah. Like, who else thinks of this? When you mentioned it, and then, like, this was, like, I think last year, probably around this time, maybe. Yeah. No, not around this time. A couple, like, probably, like, in October of last year when I was asking about different books. And you're like, well, this one has this. It was, like, the dinos with swords with arms. And when I brought up that one episode, you're like, oh, I probably should have mentioned that. I was like, no, that's like a huge part of the reason I <laughs> want to read this. So I was so excited when I saw him finally come in. And then to find out, like, you got these powerful sorcerers and it took all, almost everything they had just to get one of them away. I was like, oh, yes, they're awesome. <laughs> yeah. So first we have uh, we have the group getting to Sultoan. We get kind of the history of the city and why it's such a dump in like a paragraph. Because yep. in in a season of flooding, the river just changed course. It's pretty gnarly. I wonder if that's happened in real life. I would assume so. Because like when he wrote that in, I was like, oh, I wonder if that's happened anywhere. I but... I think that it's safe to say that most of the things that he puts in this book are like in these books are based on something, something. from reality. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So they go through Twist Face Passage, which is. <laughs> The neighborhood just says wrecking crews that if someone gets stuck there, it's fair game. Which is interesting. Like, Last time I was here, we had to fight off a bunch of them. We yeah. we made the population a little smaller. Yeah, we killed half a neighborhood of cutthroats. <laughs> I mean, could be worse. It could be better. Could though. be a little worse. They're offered escort by the like by the criminals, and I love that the woman is like just hitting on Stunny like. I'll lay my heart down at your feet. And Sonny's like, don't lay it down at my feet. I step hard. <laughs> I love Starney's just like anti everything. Well, not quite because not quite. They, they, they like, get up to some fun in the meeting. Not, but like all the mushy stuff, I guess. Yeah. And uh, what's his name? Harlow, right? She doesn't like him. Oh, yeah. But he's grunts like i've never seen you chase a woman this bad and he's like it's she's unattainable that's why <laughs> he's like it's more just for the fun of it yeah just during the meeting grunter glances over and the one oh. lady just has her hand down Stunny's pants and he's like i'm not <laughs> to quote our friend natalia i'm not drunk enough for this and immediately starts like <laughs> drinking some more ale he's like what is going on in this meeting <laughs> Um, what did you think of uh, the children of the dead seed? Thought that was kind of messed up, honestly. Yeah, now you know what they what Dujek meant when he said, "And if the rumors are true, cannibalism is the least of the atrocities." Yeah, hundred percent. Like cannibalism is pretty messed up, but I feel like that's like, ugh, ah, that's weird. yeah. Um, literally getting seed from dead people. That's another one of those things that like. I would be afraid to ask, but I'm like, Erickson, did you, you can come up with that on your own. Like that. Oh, it's real. Has to be it's a, some, it's like, a real bizarre. thing that's happened. Yeah. That's a bizarre historical note. Yeah. I'm going to see if I, the FBI might be tracking my search history after this one. Like what? I just searched them. Are, are children of the dead seed real? Uh, Yep. Yep. It's happened. Oh, geez. People are wild and not a good way. <laughs> Yeah, it's one of those things. I love how Erickson's a historian, but there's certain notes in some of these parts where I'm like, I like forget how messed up history is and some of the things people have done sometimes are. Yeah. 
yeah, it's um the first time I read that I was like, he did not, no way, and yeah, he did. Like, cause I mean, like, like cannibalism you hear about, cause like animals do it. Cannibalism's like, you know, nothing. Yeah, and like when they say cannibalism's nothing, I like I can't even. I was trying to think. I'm like, well, what's worse? Yeah, that's worse. So much worse. Yep, the youngest of the Panion Doman's followers are children of the Dead Seed, so they have there have been children born of this. Pretty pretty wild place to live. Yep. Uh, like yeah. The, so, oh, go ahead. I was just gonna say it's like um, it's like uh, how would you describe it? Like a very dark Wild West. <laughs> Ugh. Uh, Maybe this is <laughs> this is like if the Dark Ages went times a thousand. The what? The Dark Ages, yeah. There you go. Like the the Crusades, the Dark Ages, in some aspects. Maybe not the Crusades, but you know what I mean. Like a religious like yeah. domination with kind of messed up certain things. But I mean, I just read R. Scott Baker's first three books. That is literally what if a crusade happened in a magical world? Oh, that's an interesting in a very premise. dark magical world with yeah, yeah. No, that's um, it's uh. I can see why they're uniting together to come beat these guys up. Yeah, like there's like Lee said in our Deadhouse Gates wrap up episode, there's no defending the bad guys in this book. Yeah. Like it's been pretty gray so far, but this one it's like, uh, well, they're eating people and raping dead bodies. So Yeah. I mean Deadhouse had some pretty like like black and white stuff. I mean like taking a bunch of unarmed soldiers and It's true, yeah. But like putting the them side, all up on a the, bunch of trees, the sides were a little morally gray because both sides were doing bad things. And like both sides did things mm-hmm. that were definitely in the black and white side of the spectrum. But this yeah. one, it's like, no, the Panion Doman is bad. So go, go it destroy is... them. Yeah. And then uh, Karuli tells the people like, you've probably heard the Panion priest like it's a paradise. Everyone gets equal treatment. Well, I'm here to tell you it's a tyranny and only the original members get that treatment. The Temescari are left to their own devices, which is why they're cannibals. It's like, it's like oh, the, so, th- so it's like every dictatorship ever. Reminds me of a have you seen the one uh, it was a family guy clip. that I, it's, it's one that pops up on like YouTube occasionally and he's like, it's one it's like Peter Griffin landing in America for the first time. Yes, I've seen that. Yeah. Remind it, me of that a little. Yeah. <laughs> so for those they're that like, haven't everyone seen will it, be free. But yeah. <laughs> except for <laughs> anyone that's not a white male. And I mean, white, white. So no Italians. <laughs> just like, just like, just like Br- well, British and Spaniards. And then British. He goes, yeah. Yeah. Because Peter Griffin lands on the shore of America and is like, freedom for everyone, except for all of these groups like women and black people and LGBT people and Muslims. And then after this long list of like only white, white men, ah, America. Such a great clip. That reminds me of their like, if the, it's like um if they're if the opinion, uh, I'm like Doman. Domen, I'm struggling right now. If the Panion Domen, uh, like adverts for honest, like that's what it would actually be. <laughs> there you go. Anything else about that part? No, 
Okay, uh, Gruntle hangs back at the gate to make sure that no one follows Karuli's carriage. They meet some bar guests who are here investigating demons, which obviously are the Kachain Shamal. They travel together in that night. Dan's like, okay, I'm going to ride you now. Oh, yeah. And Gruntle's like, like, I I can't refuse that. It's like, I have no choice, do I? Don't they cover themselves in grease, though? Aren't they like kind of a gross... Like the bar guys. Yeah, they covered themselves in grease, and then later on, Grunt was like, that grease was a challenge last night. Yeah, like, nothing about the bar gas sound appealing that we've learned about him so far. I mean, Hatan is funny. It's true, she is. He has big hands. Yeah. <laughs> Large hands. Well, uh. I think that might have been Erickson making a dick-sized joke, because there's that whole rumor... That is probably not true that men with big hands are. Oh, yeah. So I think that's what that was a reference to. Erickson prob- will occasionally just slip dick jokes in for for his amusement. Oh, sure. I just thought it was funny, though, that that's what kept getting brought up. I was like. Yeah. Uh... I mean, we already got one earlier with Stani telling Harlow that he's compensating with his two handed sword. Oh, yeah. Yep. Poor guy. Just getting bullied. <laughs> the bar guests bury trees upside down in hills I thought that was such a weird detail honestly I was like and they're just like and then we write runes on them and I was we like write runes on them we okay. leave like the semblance of twigs like so if the spirit does escape it has some sort of a body so that's yep. I, I think that's just like fun world building like you're in a fantasy world why not have a culture that buries trees upside down I know. Like, why not just have it? Because there's one of those things that's like, it's like, imagine like you meet up with them and you're just going along. Like, I'm sure this isn't the case. You're just going along. They're like, yeah, see that tree over there? We did that. What do you mean you Mm -hmm. did that? (laughs) Well, you see, we bury trees upside down to stop spirits. And you're like, where did that logic come from? (laughs) Like, let me just (laughs) bury this tree upside down. That's going to stop them. Yep. And sometimes the spirits do escape and then appear in our elders dreams. And was yep. it one of these spirits that told you about the demons? Yep. <laughs> yep, it was. Yeah, and then uh, we see the inside of Beauchelaine and Coral Brooch's wrecked carriage. Uh, one trunk has a bunch of slate with a bunch of symbols carved into them. And then the other is a bunch of organs arranged in the semblance of a body as like a puppet. Kind of weird. So uh, we know we know what all those grotesque murders were for. Yep. Kind of strange. Once again. I love that as they approach the carriage, Gruntle is talking to Hatan and is like, stay away from them. That's Beauchelaine with the beard. And then Cobalt Brooch is, he's the other one. He's just the other uh, guy that's there. Yeah. Cobalt Brooch is a necromancer and Beauchelaine is a demon summoner. Just pretty gnarly. I love how Beauchelaine describes the attack too. Like, it's so gentlemanly. And like, I know. He uses all this flowery language and like, Unfortunately, I regret to say that we were forced to use our entire menagerie of creatures and demons, and it's unfortunate that most of them got destroyed. But uh, what can you do? I know there he's he's the kind of guy that's pretty off-putting. Oh, like you're, yeah, you're always you're always on edge around him. You're like, like that gentle, like the gentleman vibe. You're like, yes, but no. <laughs> Who are you really? What's your actual motive? Well, he would be much less off-putting. If he was 
if he like fit the bill of what you would think an evil demon summoner would should fit like it's it's way more off-putting that he's like polite and uses language and like yeah. uses flowery flowery gentleman like language i should say yeah well yeah and i i understand that but i'm i'm like yeah it's it's pretty like every time i read him and we're around him i'm like i don't like this guy he's no. weird yeah <laughs> but um and uh buke is like yeah we're all gonna die tonight he just puts it quite plainly mm-hmm. and then it happens then it happens <laughs> i so stunny takes because stunny after finding out that hitan is just like betting everyone first of all i mean to poor reese is like we've got three nights to we've got two nights to the city and there's three of us i'm gonna be the last one picked aren't i <laughs> And then Sunny takes knee talk because Kafal's about to say, yeah, he hasn't had a woman yet. And they come back and Grunt is like, not enough time. And Sunny's kind of like, well, it was. It was his first time. Uh, yeah, so yeah. then the uh, chain Shmal attack and they're insanely quick and uh, not much that they can do. Nope, not at all. We see uh, Carilio is his name? Carulli. Carulli. He's a little bit of his power. Does or he? try to. I think uh, so. He, he like pulls the dagger out. Oh yeah, he like slices his palm and tells them to stay close to him. Yeah. The the Bargas lances like explode one. Yeah, some cool weapons. Which is fun. But yeah, Gruntle one hit and his wrist is shattered and his swords are gone. Just gone. Which is just insane. Yep. Harlow jumps in front of the next one and then Gruntle is pierced by the talons, dragged along the ground and it's like, huh, it's gone dark. So is the light out or am I dying? I know. And then it just, and, uh, it's over. That's that's where we end. Yeah. The Kachin Shamal, though, they're an ancient race. They're an elder race presumed to be extinct, right? Yep. They're one of the founding races. Okay. And they are the dino people. Yep. Cool. So cool. It's like, why not? Why not? Yep. <laughs> why not? Just throw everything. It's fantasy. Like, what are people going to do? Complain it doesn't make sense? It doesn't make sense. It's the worst book ever. It's terrible. Like, there, there is a part of me that really loves and enjoys Brandon Sanderson's approach to magic. Or other Same. authors that do it where, where it has specific rules and it almost becomes a science. But I also really love that Malazan is just like, Here's a smorgasbord of everything you could think of. I know. I think it's so much fun, the the comparison. Like, part of me, it bothers me, the Warrens, just because of how <laughs> much they're used and how much they just don't make sense but make sense. But then at the same time, I just love it that we get, like, all these big, like, like we got Anime Rake. He's a dragon. And he has a sword that captures souls. Like, there's just so many cool details. But then you get Sanderson with this massive interconnected universe. There's like laws within laws of how things work. Like, I think it's pretty cool kind of how the two different systems work. And I think they're yeah. both very entertaining. And Malazan as well. It's like just in this book already, we have dinosaurs with swords for arms. We've got two very off-putting like necromancer creepy dudes. Yep. We've got a culture that buries trees upside down in the ground. We've got Anamander Rake. We've got a hammer that could destroy the world. We got uh, the Jagut people and the like the end of their civilization. But we see 
the Talana Mass in their original place and like that they've outlived their gods. Like it's not a concept. I feel like outliving your god isn't a concept I've really seen or heard of too much. So I thought that was really cool. Yeah, we've got gods cursing a king and destruction so powerful it had to be sent to its own war and yep. we've got a new being that has three souls inside of her that's sucking the life force away from her mother. You got a chosen hero that doesn't want to be but like that's a legitimate key player in a bigger picture. Yep. Yeah. So that is Krupp. the Yep, then there's Krupp. The there's Krupp. uh super fat mage that that outwitted everyone in that council. Seriously though. While acting dumb the entire time. He's a madman, a genius. She might be a bit of both. But also, I think he's genuinely the fat guy that loves food. I think so too. I think that the, that's like a, a legit part of him. He's just like he, because at the party, he was asleep with the food. Uh huh. Yeah. So um, that is the longest we've ever recorded. I'm kind of stretching it out until nine o'clock so we can say that we've recorded for two hours. I think about else. We've only got a minute left. Um, only one minute. But those of you that know, or Malazan veterans, if you go look up what's in chapter eight, you'll understand why. I was like, I I, I kind of picked chapter eight to collaborate with uh, D and J's Epic Quest for. So if you want our thoughts on that chapter, go to their podcast. They're also on YouTube and anywhere you can get your podcasts. But I think yep. that's, I think that's all for this week. That is. So how's that, Todd? <laughs>